Welcome to the podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Arlington Heights. Our sermon series is called Parallax, where we're going to be looking at topics from the Bible from two different perspectives. I hope you enjoy. At this point, we're going to continue with our worship by reading our first scripture, which, which comes from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The word of the Lord. James 2, 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we are doing a sermon series called Parallax. Parallax is when two people are looking at the same object, but they're seeing it from completely different vantage points. And so, as you can see from up there on the screen, you see a a tree with two suns next to it. So the way we've been talking about this is that if you're in a field and you're looking at a sunset and you're to the right of the tree, it's going to look as though the sun is setting to the left. And then if you jump to the left of the tree, it'll look as though the sun is setting to the right. The whole idea being that you're looking at the exact same sunset, but you're seeing it from two completely different perspectives. And we're trying to show how this is true for the Bible. That in fact, two people can be reading the same scriptures and come away with completely different interpretations of what it means. And so each week there is going to be two pastors up here, myself and either TC or Judy, and we'll have a topic, we'll debate it out, and you can determine who had the better argument at the end. So that's the idea. Uh, I've been winning most of these, just so you know, so, um, you know, by we'll see. Uh, by my own, of oh, course. Okay, okay, okay. So this week we are going to be talking about one of the most visceral disagreements found in the Bible, which is, how are we saved? Are we saved by what we believe, our faith, or are we saved by what we do, our works? Now, before we dive into this, I want to take a quick moment to talk about our terms, because the fact is, when we dive into these things, sometimes we assume we're all talking about the same thing, when in fact, we have very different vocabularies and we have very different understandings of what these words mean. So we're talking about faith and works, and so I think it's important that we define these. Okay with that? Before we start? Okay. So, faith. Let's define that word. Faith is when you believe in something that cannot be proven. So let me give you an example of that. How many people in here have faith in God? Raise your hand. Should be all of you. Okay, just making sure. All right. So, you have faith in God. Now, here's the thing. Is God a fact? No, it's not. Okay? It's not a fact. Now, you might feel, right, that it's real and that it's true. But here's the thing. When you believe in something like God, the existence of God, you cannot prove the existence of God. 
Faith is not factual. Faith cannot be proven. Faith is not black and white, right or wrong. And I say this to you because today in our world, there are a lot of people who treat their faith as though it were factual, as though it could be proven. Now, again, it may feel real and true to you, but that does not make it a fact. So for me, faith is the tension between what can be proven and what is unknown. Works, on the other hand, so we're going to get into works now, works, that is your action in the world, specifically the actions you undertake on behalf of God. So your works are the things you do because God asks you to do those things. So in this church, we talk a lot about Matthew 25, right? And you hear me talk about that all the time. Now, Matthew 25, why do we talk about that? Because in Matthew 25, there's this long list of things that Jesus tells us we're supposed to do. He says, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, care for the sick, visit those who are in prison. So when you do those things, you are doing work on behalf of God. You with me so far? Okay, so what we are trying to discern today is when you die and you stand before God, what is the criteria that God is going to use to determine whether or not you are going to be allowed into heaven? Is God going to be looking at what you believed, your faith, the things you believed about God and Jesus, the doctrine you believed in? Or is God going to be trying to figure out what did you do with your life? How did you act? How did you impact the world? So those are the things we're going to be looking at. And if you've grown up in the Protestant church, and this is a Protestant church, what you're in right now, and Judy's going to explain a little bit more about what that means in a moment, you've been told there's one answer to that question. And I'm going to pass it off to Judy so that she can explain to you what that one answer is and why that has become the dominant criteria for how we get into heaven. Notice I didn't say I'm going to let you go now. I've changed my yes, tune on that you one. Did. You, yeah. You've grown. <laughs> I've grown quite a bit this, in these. This yes. sermon experience has really helped you to grow. <laughs> TC and I have also grown, but we are done growing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were hoping for a four-week sermon series next time, yeah. if there is even a next <laughs> So I'm pretty excited that this particular topic fell on Reformation Sunday, because at the heart of the Reformation is this whole idea about faith and works, this whole tension between faith and works. It was the Reformation, which the Reformation marks the division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And as Alex already said, if you're here today, you're a Protestant. When I was about six, one of our little neighbors came over. She was Roman Catholic. And she said to me, you're going to hell because you're a Protestant. And I looked at her and I said, I'm not. I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> so, uh, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther put before the Roman Catholic Church 95, the 95 theses, 95 arguments in writing that he had with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Martin Luther did not um, set out to divide the church. That was not his goal. His goal was simply to get change within the church. But change in the 16th century was no easier than change today. And by 1521, when Martin Luther hadn't gone away by himself, the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him, pushed him out of the church, said, 
you no longer belong here. And so from that point, we developed the Lutheran Church, Lutheranism, Martin Luther. At the same time, there were other reformers, and one of them was John Calvin. John Calvin had left uh, Germany and gone to Switzerland uh, because the reformers were under a great deal of um, threat. And so John Calvin went to Switzerland, and it was there that he wrote the Institutes of Theology. Um, he wrote them at the age of 27. I was 27 when I entered seminary, so this always made me feel extremely inadequate. Um, it's a two-volume book, and to this day, it's considered to be the foundation of Protestant theology. Now, that's the brief church history lesson for today, um, and that's enough. That's all you need to know. You're Protestant. It happened in the 16th century. Um, I want to focus on two key aspects of this division. One of them is sola fide, Latin for by faith alone. And the other is sola gratia, which is Latin for grace, only grace. The sola fide, the key understanding was that we are saved only by faith. That's the only criteria. And we are saved by faith in gratia, in the gracious works, the unmerited favor of God. God chooses to save us. It's God's choice. It has nothing to do with what we, with what we say or do. This is the foundation, really, of the Protestant uh, belief. And that's why Alex said earlier, that this is an ongoing argument in the church today, saved by faith, saved by works. One of the things that Martin Luther spoke out against in the Reformation was um, indulgences. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had a system whereby people purchased indulgences. They paid money or they traded for these indulgences. These indulgences were like their get-out-of-jail-free card. It, you bought indulgences depending on how much you sinned. You had to give an, an indulgence to go to the communion table. You had to have indulgences to, um, as a way of proving that you were saved. You had to purchase those. So, but Luther, the more he read the Bible, the more he understood that indulgences were totally against the uh, foundation of the Bible that says we're saved by God's grace through our faith in God's grace. And he felt indulgences were just a corruption in the church, a way to line the pockets of the priests. As it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, believes, this is the biblical foundation, belief in God, will be saved, will be given eternal life. Nothing about works, only about belief. The truth comes through in that John 3.16, and it comes through in a variety of Paul's letters that I'll share more about a little bit later. But for now, here's your Latin. Sola fide, sola gratia, faith and grace. All right, so 
Judy did a very good job. She clearly went to seminary and, you know, <laughs> learned a lot about the Protestant Reformation. She was able to kind of outline that for you. And I would say that on the surface, this argument makes a lot of sense. Because when you're talking about being saved by the things that you do, your works, very quickly the question that comes to mind for all of us is, when have I done enough? When have I performed enough good works that I'm going to be allowed into heaven? Because the truth is, there's a lot of need in the world. Would you agree with me on that? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a ton of need. And are you ever going to be able to do enough to alleviate all of that need? No. You can always do more. You can always help more people. You can always serve more causes. So I think the conclusion that we very quickly come to is that you can never perform enough good works to be able to get into heaven. The only problem with that argument is that James, Jesus' brother, the leader of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection, disagrees with that line of thinking. So in the scripture that we read this morning, James, he says, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if you have faith but you do not have works? Can faith save you? Now, that line right there, can faith save you? That is a direct, direct assault on that idea that you can be saved by faith alone. And James very much disagrees with John, but primarily with Paul on this, because Paul is the one who comes up with this idea. And there's good reason for why he disagrees with it. So what you have to appreciate about James and Jesus is that they're both Jewish. Now, this is something that many Christians, they set aside about Jesus. They don't even think about this very often. But you can't divorce Jesus from his Jewish heritage. These two things go together. And so what James is promoting is a very Jewish way of thinking about Jesus. So for James, you have to understand, and for the Jewish people, the way you show love to God is by following the law. And the law has a bunch of commandments in it which tells you that there's a very specific way that you're supposed to behave in the world, that there's certain actions that you are supposed to perform. And so what's very, very important here is that for James, if you're going to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, then you need to perform certain actions in the world. That's just clear. Those two things are linked together. Now, what are those actions? Well, what's interesting is when you read about the actions that James expects of you in James's letter, it sounds a whole lot like what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25. Let's take a look at what he says. So, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? Now, what's he saying here? He's saying, what you do matters far more than what you believe. And we know this because in the very next line, he says, therefore, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. So what James is saying is that faith alone cannot save you. That, in fact, what you need to do from James's perspective is that you do need to perform certain actions if you want to be considered part of God's family. That's a compelling <laughs> argument, especially bringing up James. I like how you use James yeah. and you leave me with Paul yeah, a little further removed from I'm going to keep hammering teaching. on that one. Okay. 
<laughs> so the issue remains the very question that Alex raised, which, which is, how can we ever do enough? As TC already um, told you this morning in the presentation of the Bibles, part of what pushed the Reformation forward was the development of the printing press. Prior to the 16th century, there was no printing press, no way to get printed material into the hands of common people. The Bible was in Latin, and so the only people that could read the Bible were the most highly educated, which were the priests. Martin Luther believed that every believer should have the Bible in their hand and understand and know their faith and know more about God by being able to read the Bible by themselves. Uh, Luther and Calvin studied the Bible, and the more they studied, the more they came to understand the, that we are saved by our faith, by our faith in God, because God has chosen to save us. That's the grace part, the unmerited favor. Paul does write about this repeatedly. In Galatians, he writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if we can make ourselves righteous, if we can save ourselves, why was Christ ever sent? Why did Christ die on the cross? He also writes in Romans, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. In other words, our flesh is weak. We may have a willing spirit, but we're too weak to save ourselves through our works. We need God. And then in Romans 11, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So for Paul and for Luther and Calvin, if we go with James on the works argument, then we nullify the importance of God's grace and the importance of our own belief in God. Paul says the flesh is weak, and even when we want to do the right thing, it's really hard for us to do the right thing. And that's why we need grace. We need God's unmerited, unearned favor. Um, think about the text we used a few weeks ago with the mother of James asking for her sons to be seated at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. And Jesus says to her, this is not mine to grant. This isn't the way it works. We're not working to uh, establish a hierarchy to earn a better place in heaven, to get to heaven more quickly. Um, that's not what works is about. We're all saved by faith through grace, so we're all brought into the presence of God when we die. We can do all the things we want to do, that we have the time and energy to do, but it doesn't change our status in God's eyes. We are all God's beloved children. Sola Fide asserts that it is our faith. And Sola Gratia asserts that it is God's grace. And so we are saved without the need for works.
<laughs> so I say. So you say. So here's the question I would ask. So did Luther ever meet Jesus? No. Okay, I'm just asking. I just want to make sure. Did Calvin ever meet Jesus? No, of course not. They based did, a lot, Luther based a lot on the book of Romans that Paul wrote. Did Paul ever meet Jesus? Now here is a bigger point, which is that Paul never knew Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. He didn't know him when he was a kid. He didn't know him when he was a teenager. He didn't know him when he was an adult. Didn't even know him during his ministry. Didn't see him die. The only time that Paul claims to have met Jesus is actually during his resurrection. In fact, he claims he's the last person to have seen Jesus in his resurrected form. Now, other than that, he's had no interaction with Jesus. Whereas James, he's Jesus' brother. Grew up with Jesus, spent time with Jesus, took over the ministry for Jesus when he died. And as Jews, those two people, what's interesting is when they talk about faith and works, they say those two things are not mutually exclusive. That, in fact, it is through your works that you draw closer to God, that your works are a conduit that you experience God's grace in the world. So even though Paul, when you read his letters, what Paul says, which is very interesting, he says the way you experience God's grace is through your faith. What's interesting is that James and many of the other Jews would say, no, the way you experience God's grace is through your works. And I will tell you that in my experience, I have found that James's argument holds water for me. I told you all last week, if you were here, I go, I've been on many mission trips in my time. I told you about the last mission trip I went on before I came to this church. I'm going to tell you today about the first mission trip I ever went on. When I was 21 years old, long before I ever became a pastor, before I was in seminary, any of that, I went on a trip to a place called the Duval Home in Florida. Now, Duval Home is one of the last residential facilities in the entire country, and it's designed for those who have intellectual disabilities. And the idea is, is that this place was set up for families who are either unable or unwilling to care for their loved one. So when we went there, what we encountered were people who basically have the intellectual capacity of a one to two year old. And our job was to work with these people, to be there for them, to care for them, to, to feed them, to, to play games with them, to walk with them, to do all these different things with them. If they couldn't walk, we would sit there and literally put our hand on their shoulder and just let them know that we were there. And I will tell you that for me personally, again, this is my own experience, but when I was there lifting spoonfuls of soup to the mouths of some of these residents, I felt God's presence and grace more in that moment than I have at any point in my life in any worship service I have ever been in. And I've been in worship services all over the world. So, for me... I think it's really important that you understand. I'm just speaking about my experience now. That's where I've experienced God's grace and presence the most. And to me, it's kind of demeaning when we sit here and we try to quantify what an action means to God. Because when you sit there and you ask, well, how many spoonfuls of soup do I need in order to get into heaven? Right? That's kind of like the question that we're asking. We're, we're kind of missing the point of why we're doing it in the first place. The point of doing good works is not to get into heaven. The point is so that you can experience heaven right now through your good works. That, that 
is why we do the things that we do. And here's the other thing, and this is, this is my beef with Luther and Calvin on this, is that what makes you think that God is counting? What makes you think that God is keeping track, as if God's up in heaven with a scale, weighing your good and your bad actions? Saying, okay, are these gonna... so Alex, just so you know, I want, need you to know, you know, every spoonful of soup to the mouth, that counteracts two spiteful sentences from the tongue, so... Keep it going, baby, because there's a long way before we balance it out, okay? No, I don't think that's the way God works. And I don't think James looks at us and thinks that that's the way that God works. And remember, I'm just going to hammer this home, James was Jesus' brother. He grew up with Jesus. He arguably knows Jesus better than anyone. And he was the one who took over the church. Even though the Catholics will say it was Peter, it was not. It was James. He took over the church. He was the leader of the church. And what he tells us is that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, your job is to serve people in the world. That is what you are here to do. You are not doing that, by the way, to get God points so you can go to heaven. Your job is not to do those things so that you can go to heaven. Your job is to do that because your faith in Jesus compels you to want to make a difference in the world. Our responsibility as Christians is to bring restoration to the world in whatever ways we can. And so, however you're doing that, as long as you are making a commitment, as long as you are doing your very best and putting forth your best effort all the time, I think God's going to be pleased with you. And at the end of the day, if we're all working together, because we talk about this, one of the things that happened with the Reformation is they made it about the individual. And really, it's about our collective efforts working together. And God has given us this wonderful gift through our good works that we can not only help ourselves, but we can also save each other. Alex is such a good arguer, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, really, I don't know how Courtney does it. <laughs> it would be tough at home. But she is an attorney, so <laughs> she probably has a few tricks. So... I want to start with the last line that Alex said, which is saving each other. We are not responsible for saving each other. I'm not going to argue that we aren't responsible for doing good works for one another and for those that are in deep need, but we don't have to save each other because God has already saved all of us. When our oldest daughter was in high school, she had, a, uh, she had a boyfriend her junior and senior year. He was from the Southern Baptist Church. We lived in Louisville. Uh, I just, just a note out there to any mothers of teenagers, Southern Baptist boys are great first boyfriends <laughs> because they believe they are saved by works and they're not going to do anything. <laughs> so we like that part. But on Sunday night sometimes, the girls would go to, uh, to the Baptist Church and at the end of the service, there was always this altar call. And uh, so one day, my daughter came home, and she goes, oh, my gosh, I almost went up front just so church would be over. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm saved, but they weren't going to stop until somebody went forward. <laughs> so Ken said to her, next time somebody asks you uh, when you were saved, you tell them, 2,000 years ago. Jesus saved you. 
Um, another uh, story I want to tell you about my family and about myself mostly uh, is the way we played games. One night, uh, I pulled out the sorry game. If you know the sorry game, yeah. Okay. So I pulled it out on the kitchen table. I kind of had this feeling like I was an inadequate mother. We didn't play enough board games, so we were going to play a board game. I know all the moms out there can relate to this. So um, Ken was probably at a meeting at church. So I told him the rules of sorry. We started playing sorry. Now you know, you roll the die, you move a few blocks, you pick a card. Well, there's sorry cards, right? And if you pick a sorry card, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Well, one of my kids picked a sorry card. Total meltdown. Total meltdown. <gasps> That's not fair. You can't make me go back. So I tried to explain the rules of the game, the randomness of these games. It was all going to work out in the end. She wasn't having any part of it. So I said, give me that deck of cards. And I pulled out all the sorry cards. And from then on, we played the game without the sorry cards. Now, that worked really well until one Thanksgiving, my kids are playing sorry with their cousins. And all of a sudden, I hear this voice from the basement, one of my sisters. Judy, what do you mean you pulled out the sorry cards? <laughs> my sisters were more competitive. <laughs> so I share this story with you just so that you know that I'm a peacemaker. And I always am looking for a way for everybody to win. So I want Alex to feel like he's won today, too. <laughs> so we are coming at this argument from very different perspectives. But I think ultimately, we could agree on the fact that we are saved by faith, and then the works come along. Out of a sense of gratitude to God. I spoke about that a couple weeks ago, too. Because we know we're saved by faith. We're grateful for that salvation. And so we do good things for others. We help the needy. We clothe the naked. Because God has given us this unmerited favor and grace, we, it motivates us to help others. And in helping them, we're not going to save them but we're going to show them how to believe in God. We're going to be, Alex was God, Jesus, for that young man that he was feeding. And so for that young man who doesn't have all the mental abilities to grasp these types of arguments, in Alex's feeding of him, he was taught what God's salvation and unmerited grace is. That little boy didn't do anything to deserve to be fed. He just needed to be fed. One of the early theologians in the Methodist church said that our need to believe is an unconditional need for salvation. Like, you have to believe to be saved. And this same theologian said works were conditional. So in other words, we do works in as much as we have time, energy, um, and, and we do these works with a great amount of intelligence and imagination and energy and love. But consider the thief on the cross. He believed. He didn't have time to do the works. We look for opportunities to serve out of this deep faith that we have. 
and out of our desire to share God's grace with other people. We want to be the people God has made us to be, has created us to be. So the sorry cards are out of the deck. We are all winners today because we are saved by faith through grace in order to do good works. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.